is standing before your people. He has no words of his own. Only that which you give him to give to us. Father, we thank you for preparing our hearts to receive. And we thank you for that Rema word that will come through him to your people. That we hunger for. That we are believing you for. That's what we are going to hear. Father, anoint our ear of the spirit to glean from what you have to give to us today. We ask that you impute into your servant that fire of your rema that we minister grace to us this day. And we thank you because we have received in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love it. I love that. More fire, Lord. Hallelujah. Let's have more fire. You know, God puts uh, different blessings and graces uh, upon different people and different individuals and different cultures. And wow, those African guys have got some fire. But of course, you don't automatically have it. Even the Africans have to stir it up, don't you? You still have to fight for it. Hallelujah. But you, you got it for us, so hallelujah. We just receive that. You know, you receive a, a prophet, you receive the prophet's reward. You receive an African, you receive his, his reward, eh? Like we, we love and receive. That's what the church is all about, isn't it? We love and receive one another, then we're all richer, all right? We're all richer for who we love. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and the reason we're here... <clears throat> Uh, is because I believe that the Lord is wanting us to move farther and farther into the Spirit and less and less in the flesh. And this is a great transition book, the first of the New Testament, the first introduction of Jesus. It's about moving out of even Old Testament parameters and into the New. And it's, the, it's the, a great book. It is an extremely challenging book. You know, really, once you read the, the um, Sermon on the Mount at the very beginning... Really, if you're actually honest and let those words penetrate into your heart, you might just run away and think, I'm going to go and read Leviticus. At least I don't understand what it's saying, so it doesn't bother me, <laughs> pressurize me so much. <laughs> All right? Really. But so we're on this painful journey of the heart. It, it, is, it is quite a painful one. And I'm afraid, I wish I could say I have all sweet and encouraging words for you today, but I've got some kind of hard words. You know? Yeah. Tough words. Hey, no, no pain without gain. You're not going to run a marathon if you've sat on your sofa eating chips and drinking Coke and thinking about it for years. Will ya? <laughs> oh, no. 26 miles. Hallelujah. We are in... The, the book of Matthew is divided into seven beautiful sections. There's an introductory section. There's five great sermons, and then there's the great climax of the cross and the resurrection. We are in Sermon 4. The, f- the five sermons are divided by a little footnotes in the text which say something like, and when Jesus had finished all these sayings, or when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, or when he had finished telling them these parables. So we are in sermon number four. The depth and the beauty of the text and the integration of the text is so deep, it is like a sea that stands before the throne of God that's like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, that is three or four dimensional actually and the best that we can ever do is just get a little glimpse of it 
But it's a lifetime journey, and it's a journey of eternity into discerning and understanding the mind of God. I don't know to what extent Matthew, who wrote this, actually understood even the structure himself. Other, or whether it's uh, people that have been studying it for the last 2,000 years have actually said, wow, that Matthew was saying an awful lot more than he realized he was saying because of the depth of how God integrates his truth together. Well, you'll be pleased to know that I cannot begin to even take you as far as what I have seen, but I will try. In sermon number four is a sermon concerning relationships and concerning the church. It begins with Jesus going to his hometown, which we talked about that when we were talking about chickens the other day. When he went to his hometown, ruffled all the feathers, upset all the pecking orders, freaked everyone out, First they were amazed, then they were offended, and then they sunk down into sullen unbelief. And so he left. <laughs> right? Then we have the story of Herod having his birthday party where his scheming, illegitimate wife finally managed to get her revenge on the prophet John the Baptist and have his head cut off and brought into the dinner party on a platter. Then we had the passage that Brian dealt with last week, which is the feeding of the 5,000, when the disciples and Jesus had gone away to a quiet place to have a break and grieve John the Baptist. It just wasn't to be. They were surrounded with crowds, 5,000 men who brought their wives and children with them as well, we, are, uh, we assume. And um, so there was no resting. They worked all day preaching and healing the sick. And then we come to the, uh, after that, then we come to this passage that we are dealing with today, and I'll read it. But it's, I really want to put this into the whole context of the whole situation. So don't forget about Jesus offending his hometown, and don't forget about the Feast of Herod, and we will be referring back to them. And don't forget about the feeding of the 5,000, because these stories are all integrated together. They are very much tied together. And you cannot understand them unless you understand that context to some degree. So here, let's start with verse 22 of Matthew chapter 14. Then he made the disciples, this is after they had uh, fed the 5,000 and gathered up the stuff left over. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was this time many furlongs distance from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they said, cried out in f- for fear. But immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, have no fear. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, bid me come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, O man of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and besought him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. 
and as many as touched him were made well. Okay, first I'm going to just give you my outline. Because I have been working on this for two weeks, I have prepared 50 sermons on this this morning. <clears throat> I didn't even have time to read all my notes this morning. I just started again. All right. Because, you know, uh, it's hard to sometimes get the structure right. But this is what I'm going to be talking about. And I'll give you my complete outline so you know exactly where I'm going. How would that be? That's a shock for me, isn't it? Right there. Some of you guys are fainting already. Okay, good. I'm calling this the battle for headship. Who is really in charge? Who are we really following? The battle over headship. So after a few introductory remarks, which could be a whole sermon in themselves, but I won't do that, I'm going to do three points. I have three points, and I have four points under each of the three. Those are my two favorite numbers, three and four, and they add up together to seven, which is my third, also a favorite number of mine. So, okay? Now, so the first one point I'm going to make, and this whole subject of headship, because think about John the Baptist, it's all about losing your head or having your head, and who's in charge, dishonoring of the prophet, killing the prophets, whatever. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is how God, how Jesus, offends our minds. Everybody in this whole section is offended. By the end of it, according to Mark, even after they got through the boat, they were still offended about the loaves and the fishes. They were still hardened their hearts because they didn't understand. They were fed up with the whole thing. The disciples were, okay? Sometimes we say, wouldn't it be lovely to be in Bible times and have all those miracles happen? No, those guys were fed up and angry and offended by the end of this, okay? (laughs) And you might be too by the time you got out here this morning, (laughs) okay? Because Jesus offends our minds because we like to have our own head, don't we? To reveal what is really in our hearts. The human problem is in the heart, isn't it? So he does, and I'm going to talk about four ways in these passages that he offends our mind in order to reveal our heart. And by the way, that isn't so that we can figure out, or sorry, so that God can figure out what's in our heart. He already knows what's in our heart. It's so that we actually admit what is in our hearts to ourselves and deal with it, and let him deal with it, all right? That's a scary journey to be going on, isn't it? Well, okay, so that's the first one. Then I'm going to talk about what? About the wind. Peter saw the wind, and he was afraid. I'm going to talk about four things that are in the wind that are terrifying things, all right, to overcome, all right? And then my third thing is how to keep our head forth, keys to keeping, well, Jesus as our head. Jesus is the head over all things, it says, for the church. We're talking about the church, and this whole sermon in Matthew begins, how can we keep Jesus as the head of the church? How can we keep Jesus as the head of the church? That is an exercise that we all must engage in. That is an exercise that the leadership team must engage in. How do we keep Jesus as the head of this thing? Okay, because... And it really applies to the church, but it applies to us individually. How do we let Jesus be our head? It applies in the world. How do we get Jesus to be the head in the world? Now, here's how the world handles the headship, isn't it? It chops it off. (laughs) That's the Herod thing. We're not going to have this head. We're not going to have God as head over us. These prophets coming around telling us what's right and what's wrong, we're not going to have that. We know what's right and wrong, and anyway, even if we don't, we still will do whatever we feel like, and we'll invent a philosophy that justifies that. Okay, human beings love that. 
to be ahead. So the world is like that. And the church, though, is meant to be, and we are meant to be as Christians, those who have made Christ our head, haven't we? Now, the whole human problem goes back, all the way back to Adam and Eve, isn't it? Where they disobeyed God. We're not going to listen to what he says. We don't like his interpretation about the fruit, this tree. We think that tree is okay to eat. We're going to eat that tree. We're going to do that thing that he said is wrong because we know better than God. So we are going to have our own head. The only problem is that human beings think they're the head like Herod, but actually they never are. Because true headship in the world rises up in a different way, doesn't it? It ended up being the devil who was, became the head, didn't he? It was the devil who became the head. Now, um, hence, I could have done this when I was talking about the chickens, hence the world runs around like a chicken with its head cut off, doesn't it? Okay, we'll get into that a little bit more <laughs> as we go, okay? But in the church, the apostles and prophets, along with Christ, who is the chief cornerstone, are the foundation of the church. So those are the things that we have to have in place, the prophetic, the apostolic, in order for Christ to be the head. And we'll think about some of that as we go. The reason also that we um, are talking about this headship thing, even more so to do with the sea here, is because in John's Gospel, who also records these two stories, he gives us a clue as to why Jesus went up into the mountain and prayed and sent his disciples out in the boat. Or he tells us outrightly why, why he did that. And the reason he said that Jesus did that is because after those 5,000 men and their wives and family were fed, they wanted to take Jesus and make him king by force. All right? Now that is a very natural, worldly headless chicken thing to do, isn't it? Let's have a vote, and we all vote for this guy to be our king. Now, what is the... What, we might say, well, maybe Jesus should have just done that. That would have been the easier way to become a king, wouldn't it, than going to the cross and all that stuff. <laughs> what do you think? Should Jesus have just taken over that? He was pretty wise, wasn't he? He could have been king. And this is where we get into what the headship deal really is. If Jesus had let them make him king, he would have become a king just like Herod. Wouldn't it be? Who's really the king? If they made him king by force, who's really the king? The king is they, whoever that is, isn't it? They. And Herod was no king. Someone else, the Romans were actually, he was a puppet king. And even beyond that, actually, his brother's wife, was actually pulling the strings and got what she wanted in the end, didn't she? If you read Mark's account of that, he makes it a bit more detailed. She had a grudge, and she was trying to kill John the Baptist, but Herod was protecting him because, you know, he had some kind of semblance of what was just and right. But in the pressure of his dinner party situation, he changed his moral stance. And that's, that's pretty typical of the world, isn't it? Yeah. The morality arises from dinner party chat isn't it? Let's have a look. Oh, we all feel in this gathering when we're half drunk that this would be a good thing or that would be a good thing or maybe we should march off into that country and have a war there or maybe we should do this or that or the other. Do you ever get a feeling that our politicians are making decisions half drunk at dinner parties with their friends? We might get into that a bit more. We have time. You know, I wonder if somebody would get me a drink of water. I'm getting really dry. 
mouth here. I'm talking too fast. I'm trying to hammer too much. I'm drying my mouth out, but I'm going to have a drink of water, and I'm going to get through this. Okay, so let's go. Hopefully that's enough introduction. You know where I'm going with this kind of thing, okay? Now I'm going to tell you about how he offends our minds to reveal our hearts in this story. Number one, point number one. This is how he offends our minds. He does not submit to our common sense, so-called. God does not submit to our common sense. Okay? It's right here in the feeding of the 5,000, verse 15, chapter 14. When it was evening, the disciples came to him, to Jesus, and said, This is a lonely place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away into the village and buy food for themselves. Okay, so I don't know whether this was... Thank you, I really appreciate that, Tony. That is a redeemed publican right there. And that is deliciously ice-cold water. It's not beer. It's just water. Hallelujah. Yeah. The disciples, having preaching all day, and ministering and helping, you know, I guess they were catchers when people were going out in the spirit and whatever, sorting things out. They said, common sense, everybody's tired, everybody's hungry, Lord, you've been working long enough, send the people away. They were trying to take charge of the Lord, and it was an extremely sensible thing, wasn't it, they were suggesting. Very good common sense. But what did Jesus do? And this is the beginning, I suggest, of why they were, they were offended by the end of all this. <laughs> he says, no... <laughs> we're going to do something else. Oh, thank you. Oh, <laughs> publicans, publicans' assistants. <laughs> wow. Hallelujah. Uh, he doesn't always submit to our common sense. And common sense is not the same as hearing from God. You know, some people confuse that. They think common sense... And most human beings, Mark Twain said, common sense is one thing that seems to be in a great abundance on earth because I've never met anybody who didn't think they had loads of it. Okay? Everybody thinks, oh, I've got to go to common sense. I'm not going to listen to that guy. I'm going to do this. I know. That's right. And um, it is not the same as hearing from God. In fact, in other accounts of this, it tells a little bit more detail of the conversation that went on here. So even after Jesus said, oh, no, we're not going to do this, we're going to feed these guys, and then it says, in order to test Philip, in John's Gospel's account, he says, you feed them. <laughs> so Philip gets out his little calculator, <laughs> and he must have been fairly... Sometimes I say Philip wasn't really bright, but actually, after thinking about it this week, I thought, actually, he maybe was quite bright. Because how do you estimate this crowd? So he estimates the crowd at 5,000 men plus women and children, gets out his little calculator and says... 200 denarius would be just enough to give them a scant meal. So 200 denarius is 200 days' wages for a laborer. In our money, it would be about 20 grand, okay? Say 20,000 pounds. And with 20,000 pounds, let's say there was 10,000 people here. Everybody brought their wife and a few maybe, you know, but it was at least 10,000. But let's say, just for the sake of argument, it was 10,000, the wife, women and children as well. So 10,000 people 
and 200 denarii is about 20 grand. That would be two pounds each. So you could just pop down to the local McDonald's and get a Happy Meal for everyone with 20 grand, okay? So Philip had worked that all out quickly. And he had this very common sense. He said, well, Lord, in order to feed all these people, we need 20 grand. I don't think they actually had it. It's just the, amount, the number they picked out. So that was very sensible. Now, there's nothing wrong. I'm not saying there's something wrong with common sense, is it? There's nothing wrong with analyzing the accounts and seeing what we can do and what's right. But if that's where it stops, men are still, and their common sense, are still running the whole show, aren't they? They're still running the whole show. And you're not going to feed the 5,000 yet. You just send them off, sort themselves out. And most of the time... That's what God does, isn't it? He didn't feed people every day, did he, Jesus did? So most of the time, that is actually how things are being done. But these stories are symbolic of more than that. They are symbolic of the word of God, of the, as Brian was saying last week, of, of the body of Christ, who is the true bread from heaven, being spread out to the nations. And most commentators interpret this passage and the next one of feeding the 4,000 over the next page as being symbolic of the word of God going out into the whole First to Israel, the 5,000 with the 12 baskets left over, and then to the 4,000. Uh, just symbolic numbers. Obviously, the numbers weren't uh, indicative of the relative number of Jews and Gentiles. It's not that. But that's the way most commentators and theologians have understood this over the years, that these are symbolic of the word of God going out. Now, if the word of God is going to go out to the whole earth, we need a lot more than common sense, don't we? It is never going to work. It's not going to happen. And it hasn't happened. Thankfully, it hasn't happened that way. It couldn't have. It would have just been a little philosophy that died in Israel about 10 years after Jesus died, probably. This would have, what would have happened. But there is a supernatural thing. So it is necessary that we move. So God does things that offend our common sense if we are going to be people of the Spirit. Okay? Are you ready for Are you, are you going to give God permission yes. to ask you stuff, to do stuff? that your common sense tells you isn't a good thing to do. Okay? Secondly, he doesn't respect our desire to avoid conflict and embarrassment. How do you feel about that one? Jesus does not tiptoe around like a dysfunctional, weak, girly man pastor, satisfying... Every little offensive thing, okay? Sorry, I hope that, I didn't mean to use that term. But, and offensively, sorry, that, that was the wrong term to use. <laughs> okay. But I'm talking about a certain type of things, okay? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't mind offending our sense of embarrassment. He addresses our dysfunctionality. Why am I saying that, and how, where am I getting it from this passage? Well, obviously, at the background, and we'll come to it a bit, Herod was pushed around by social convention and what embarrassed him, didn't he? He was controlled by that. But Jesus is not. He didn't mind offending people. But he doesn't do it deliberately just to offend people, either, okay? But he does not respect our desire to avoid conflict and embarrassment. So he told the disciples... Before he told them what he was going to do, before he said, oh, I've, I've got a way to make millions of tons of bread, he got them to sort out the whole crowd, put them into groups of 50, 
Now, do you think all those people were just sitting there quietly while, you know, Peter and Andrew and all those guys were trying to get him to go into groups of 50? I don't think so. I think that was a really socially awkward moment right there. You know, because there was no, what, what do you, why do you want us to sit over there? Like, I know I feel that way when people, you know, leading a meeting say, I want you to all get in groups now. And we're going to, I think, oh, dear, I wish I hadn't come today. <laughs> do you ever feel that way? You know, and it wasn't like they were saying, okay, guys, we're going to have some food now. Sit down in groups of 50. They didn't have that. They didn't know what they were saying. And they were probably grumbling anyway because they were all offended already because they were actually tired and they wanted to leave. All right, so they had all that sorting out to do. And Jesus doesn't care. He just tells them to do it. So he doesn't care about that, and he will offend us and offend our hearts. He will ask us to do things that are awkward and embarrassing to do. You want to be a prophet? You want to walk with God? Hmm? Or you want to play it safe? Thirdly, we touched on this before, he does not submit to social niceties, pecking orders. He doesn't do it like Herod did, did he? Because the, the dinner party morality of what half-drunk people at dinner parties feel is the right thing or the wrong thing is never the right thing, is it? It's never the way to God. And anyway, how did Herod's party end up? Herod's party ended up with a bloody head on the platter, the table. Do you think anybody felt like having dessert or the cheese course after that? I don't actually think so. I think they went straight to the brandy and cigars after that. That's what I think. It was a horrible, horrible thing. And social niceties actually end badly. You know, I actually, just let me just interpret this into the world for a while, if you will indulge me for a moment. You know, I think that uh, President uh, Bush, George W. Bush's uh, dinner parties, over the years after the Kuwait war, Always at the dinner party, there was this discussion about should we have gone in there and finished Saddam Hussein off when we had the chance? And the general wisdom of the dinner party was, yes, we should have done that. And young George says, won't you worry, Dad. When I get to be president, I'm going to get in there and sort out that Saddam Hussein. I think that's about the level of wisdom that was involved in that decision to march into Iraq at the time. And Tony Blair joined that dinner party and agreed with it. They all went and did that. Then Mr. Obama gets in. Oh, peace, man. Let's give him the Nobel Peace Prize just because he hates Bush and he's going to bring world peace now overnight. So, oh, we'll pull the troops out of there and we'll get the peace. We'll get all our troops home and we'll have a lovely time. So his dinner party is a different clientele at his dinner party. They're not as hawkish. They're all doves. You know, they're all peace lovers, so-called. So the wisdom of that dinner party is, well, let's pull all the troops out of there and Oh, let's encourage the Arab Spring, you know, let's help the Libyans get liberty from this evil uh, Gaddafi. And David Cameron went to the dinner party, and they all generally agreed this would be a great, wise thing to do. And so they went and did that. And then, oh, a few months later, the dinner party chat has moved on to something else. So poor old Libyans are just left to drift. And the Iraqis are left to drift. The conversation has moved on to other things. And the Middle East descends under the ISIS rising up, 
And now the dinner parties are all, everybody scrambling around trying to think, what should we do? What should we do? And there's no wisdom in any of it, is there? There's no wisdom arising from that. It's just political, just political wills. And if we want Jesus to be the head, man, we cannot be pushed around by niceties of the dinner party. You know, manipulation, how it works? Pushed around. What is acceptable? What's socially correct to say? What is politically correct to say? The thing is, who's the head of the political correct thing? Who's the head of that? It's just a tossing sea, isn't it? With one head comes up, whatever happens to be in vogue. The morality changes daily. It's a bunch of secondhand Christian ethics picked and chosen over, but they change. Within 10 years, believe me, they'll be completely changed again, what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. Changing, completely shifting, headless. And yet there is a hidden, hidden head behind it, underneath it. And Revelation warns us that out of the sea, the beast will arise in the end. And there is actually a head, a beast with a head behind it all. And we know who that head is, don't we? We know who that head is. It's the devil, and he may appear very, very clever. Fourthly, so that Jesus offends our minds, and we need to let ourselves be offended if we want to, we want to move forward on this one. Fourthly, how he offends us, he gives us impossible tasks to do that won't work. He asks us to do things that we cannot afford. Do you know that? Have you ever had Jesus ask you? Because if you only do what you can afford, you will never, ever rise above your meager economic circumstances. And the same is absolutely true of the church. All right? The life of faith is not the same as the life of common sense and nicely managed budgets and all that kind of thing. Look at it. Philip gave him the accountant's thing. Look, 20 grand wouldn't be enough. Really, 30, we might be able to just give them enough. And probably they had about 14 cents, actually, because Judas nicked it all anyway. <laughs> so they didn't have any money. So feed them. Feed his people. And when they were offended by that, he said, oh, I see you haven't learned this lesson. Now I'm going to give you another lesson. Get in your boat and go across the lake. Then he sends a wind at them that's so strong that it blows them off course by about five miles, and the more they rode, the farther they were from what they were trying to do. They were not happy. Twelve hours earlier, this is, this is now between three and six in the morning, all right? Yes. They had already wanted to taper off about seven that evening, and Jesus had them work until like 11 or something, and feeding all those guys and sorting out the food and everything. And now, rather than, okay, guys, Go and lay down and have a nice little rest. You've really worked hard and you've really done well with the bread thing. Just go and have a rest. No. He, it says he made them get into the boat. I mean, he had to make them get in. They weren't getting into the boat. He made them. It says he constrained them. I looked at the Greek. There's just no getting away from it. I know gentle Jesus, meek and mild, doesn't even cry in the manger. But, and he never bosses us around. No, he's not a tyrant. Oh, actually, he made his disciples get into the boat when they really didn't want to. They wanted to just go and lay on the grass and cry and moan <laughs> and say what an unreasonable God this was to expect people to do that, what he had just asked them to do. 
And believe me, after nine hours of hard rowing to save their lives, they weren't in any better mood either. <laughs> Not at all. And then, oh, guess what? He doesn't just sort of step into the boat. He goes walking, and Mark says, as if he was going to pass by. So he's just walking by, and oh, oh, guys. You understand why these guys were just ready to, man, they were deeply offended. God did not come to your life to make life easier on <laughs> the short term. I like what Reinhard Bonnke says. God didn't give us the anointing of the Holy Spirit to keep, save us from trouble. He gave the anointing of the Holy Spirit for those who take the trouble <laughs> to serve him. Anyway. So Jesus has thoroughly and completely offended these guys, and then he scared the wits out of them by appearing like a ghost walking on the waves. So when people are really angry, the best way to get them out of it, this, this is the teaching of Jesus here now, the best way to get people out of their fierce anger when they're just about ready to do you know, something crazy is to scare the wits out of them as well. Talk about emotional overload. Emotional overload, eh? <sighs> yeah. Still want to be a Christian, anybody? <laughs> you want an easy life? What did you say? Yeah? What did you go out in the wilderness to see when you went to see John the Baptist? You know, people that have nice clothing—they're in kings' houses. You know, you should hang out in Herod's house. If you want to have parties and just sort of go with the flow and not have any pressure, hang out in Herod's house. Be one of his buddies. You know, morality is fluid, flexible. Hang out with Jesus? Man. So, what does he reveal when he reveals our hearts like this? Well, I guess it brought up anger, brought up their attitudes about all kinds of stuff, and they were, at the end of it, offended. Now, let's look at the wind, this, this thing about the wind. Because Peter, and this is a journey of the prophets. We already, we already talked about the prophet's journey here. You know, if you want to be a prophet, you're going to have to let yourself be offended by God. All right? Just brace yourself for it. You can ask for extra if you want, or you can ask for less, I guess. And how fast do you want to get your life? <laughs> how fast do you want to go? All right. But let's look at this, this one, because Peter is on a journey of having his eyes opened. You know, a little bit later on in, in chapter 16 is where he has, you know, Jesus says, who do you see that I am? And Peter says, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, 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 and Jesus says, you know, my Father has revealed this to you. He's getting his eyes opened. And then a little bit farther on, we're still in the same sermon here, sermon number four, the church. And this is why Peter actually was made the first leader of the church, because he was the one who was actually perhaps finding his way through the offense quicker than the others, all right? Guys like Thomas, man, they were offended right to the, even the resurrection offended him. He, he was just completely offended always. You want to be Thomas? Yeah. You know? And Judas was just so offended that he just abandoned him in the end, all right? So, so how you handle offense is the biggest test of our walk with God. How will you handle offense? All right? Especially God's offense. I don't mean when people offend you, but God does use people as well, but so Peter, and, the, and then the transfiguration, where he saw, again, 
So Peter is on this journey of seeing. And sometimes we give Peter a lot of stick because he always seems to be a bit uh, brash or he, he seems to be making mistakes. We see his mistakes a lot. So he asks, you can imagine what Thomas was sitting in the boat, you know, and Peter's walking on the water there for a little while and then he sinks and he says, yeah, I knew he'd sink, you know. You know, he, he would have. And we're often a bit like that. Oh, Peter, you know, he failed there and he failed there. But I don't actually think he did fail. I think his eyes were being opened. So he, got, he asked Jesus, he didn't have to do this. He could have just been offended enough just to stay in the boat, but he actually, I would say, was maybe the one who wasn't offended. Had, or had got through it, anyway. Got through it. So he says to Jesus, bid me to come out. No, Jesus didn't say, oh, if any of you want to walk on the water, by the way, you can do it. Actually, Peter took the initiative. That's a good thing with God. To ask, take some initiative. If God is teaching you stuff. Go ahead and take some initiative. Ask him, oh, Lord, send me there. Or, Lord, give me someone that needs something today. Or, do you know what I mean? This, sometimes we're bored. We're not doing anything. We, we don't have anything to do because we haven't asked God for something to do. You know, you could even say, Lord, offend me. Sort my heart out a bit today. Do something that offends me. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I have never prayed that prayer, and I don't recommend it. <laughs> but he, see? Now, that's why that brother's farther ahead than me, because he has done that. Now that I've said it, I'm going to have to ask for that, though, aren't I? No. No. Because ultimately, if Jesus is going to be our head, you know, it is him that, in his words that we need to trust above everything else, all of our common sense, all of our own calculations, all of our own analysis, all of the social thing. It's the words of Jesus that we're going to need to listen to. And that's the word that Peter walks out on. Jesus says, come, and Peter walked out on it. He walked on the word. He didn't actually. The water doesn't hold you up, does it? No. It's the word of Jesus that holds him up. Hallelujah. The word of Jesus, the word of Jesus. And that's what we need to be hearing more and more. But I want to just look at this, the, the, the wind, what's actually in the wind. And there's four things. Remember I said there's four, I have three points and there's four under each, and I'm actually on my middle point. I'll have to move quicker because time is almost going, but anyway, I am going to do this today. I'm not going to give in to the social pressure of <laughs> finishing too early. <laughs> I'm going to offend. Sorry, Mike, I'm going to offend you this morning. <laughs> I'm not, no, I'm not going to go. I'm, I'm, I'm coming. I'm getting there, you know. Okay. What did Peter see in the wind? You don't see. Wind is invisible, isn't it? So why does it say Peter saw the wind? See, why did it say he saw the waves? You see the waves. You see the result of the wind, don't you? I believe it is because he actually saw the wind. What was in the wind spiritually? What is it that is resisting us in our walk with God? What is it that is blowing against us? And in, the, in other places in the scripture... We read about the winds of the earth, the four winds of the earth. And I've talked about this before, the four winds of the earth. They are the powers that are on this earth as a result of man's fall. They are the powers of the devil, actually. And Peter saw them. His eyes were beginning to be opened. When he stepped out in faith on that word of Jesus, but then he began to see what was in the wind. And this, if you have been on a journey of the prophetic walk, this is one of the things that puts people off. They begin to see. 
in the spirit. And not everything in the spiritual realm is lovely angels playing harps and singing. <laughs> Believe me, there are some horrible, nasty things in the spirit realm, and the worst of the worst of the horror movies has just tapped into it, but when you begin to see in the spirit, you begin to see things that make your blood run cold and make you want to turn and run away. Believe me, fear, face, no, forget everything and run. <laughs> forget everything and run. And I believe Peter began to see the spiritual powers that were resisting him. Firstly, is the political one. I've talked about this a little bit already. The leaven of Herod. In Mark's gospel, a little bit later on, but in the same section, in Jesus' commentary about this, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The political spirit of this world is a nasty thing that wants to cut your head off and put it on a platter and stick it on their dinner party and humiliate and discredit you. Herodias felt lovely after she got that head for a brief moment. She had her moment of triumph. I imagine her life ended in absolute misery, but that was the choice that she made. But nevertheless, Peter began to see that in this wind of resistance to my walk, to being, to being a disciple, there is a hatred, a destructive, violent desire against me. And he could see that. The leaven of Herod. And don't think that this is just far, far away. You know, when Jesus said, beware of the leaven of Herod, he didn't mean just, oh, there's dangerous forces out in the political world, the Romans and whatever, we're going to feed you to lions and all that. There is at that level. But those spirits seek to penetrate. And over the years, they have penetrated into the church as well, haven't they? When Jesus said, beware of the leaven of Herod, he wasn't just saying, avoid. These political spirits have gotten into the church. By the Middle Ages, the church was at the Holy Roman Empire, the most unholy empire, one of the most unholy empires the planet ever seen. Because the political spirit through Constantine and through compromise in people's hearts had got into the church. The Herod way of doing things. A little group of people get together. We get our common sense. We get our human, human juices all going. And we are actually the head over this thing. And we don't actually hear the words of Jesus and let him guide us. It's a constant battle, isn't it? Leadership yes. team. Anybody who's ever been in leadership, you know that is a constant battle. Are we going to listen to Jesus or are we going to find human expedience to run by? And that's happened to the church again and again and again and again. Whenever you hear about conflict in a church, what do people say? Church politics. Church politics. <laughs> church politics. Church politics. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Not an easy one to overcome. It's a horrible one. Secondly, the leaven of the Pharisees, the religious, it's the third, second wind, is the religious spirit. The religious spirit. The one that you'd think should be on your side. The people that you think would be on your side may actually not be. Pharisees should have been the people of God. In David's day, the Pharisees were the sons of Zadok. They were the good guys. A few generations later, it's always the previous generation that is your worst enemy. And when uh, 
How many people have seen The Lord of the Rings? Okay, The Lord of the Rings. Um, well, I can't tell the whole story. <laughs> it's a bit of a long story. Okay, it's just one aspect I want to say because of the wind here. I'm talking about the wind. You see, the wind spirit. At one point in the Fellowship of the Ring, they were trying to climb up Mount Cataras and they were trying to get through the snowstorm. Remember that? But it was getting worse and worse. There was avalanches coming down. And, they and Legolas, who is the elf, but he's also the prophet. He's the type of the prophet within Tolkien's uh, metaphor, if you like, says, there's a foul voice on the wind. Foul voice on the wind. Remember that line? Yeah. It's a foul voice on the wind. And Gandalf, who's the kind of the type of the apostle, or even almost the type of Jesus, if you like, but he's the type of an apostle, what did Gandalf say? Saruman. Saruman. Saruman the White, who had fallen into league with the Dark Lord, was standing in his tower, cursing in his voice, a foul voice in the wind. And that's one of the things that Peter saw. He saw the foul voice in the wind of the Pharisees and those others in the boat, Thomas and Judas and all the rest of them moaning, grumbling, Get back in here, you idiot! It's us that's going to have to tell your wife and look after your kids when you're dead. Yeah? You bloody idiot. You never would listen to common sense. Huh? He heard that. Oh. In the wind. Third wind. Financial Wind. Beware of the spirit of mammon, of mammon, Jesus said. When you try and do something, finance will be something. Anything you try and do in the kingdom, there will always be a financial. It's part of the powers of this earth. It's part of the way the enemy tries to shut everything down. And we really have to go beyond. See, when they were offended at this, it says, uh, when, when the disciples were offended at the end, as it says in Mark, after this boat experience even, because they didn't understand about the loaves. They did not like that little test of being asked to do something they could not afford. That winds up people more than anything else. That seems so reasonable because we just think, we've just learned how to budget and how to manage ourselves rightly, and then all of a sudden Jesus steps in and asks us to do something that we don't have in our budget, and it's a terrible thing. It offends us. Feed this or do that, whatever it is. The financial thing is always against the Holy Spirit. You know, I have um, seen what lies in this wind. Because I have tried to push through this into the supernatural supply. I don't just mean supernatural supply in terms of people giving you gifts. I mean supernatural supply in terms of multiplication of food, in terms of driving vehicles without fuel, and that kind of thing that our beautiful brother Ray Martel regularly does. And many people throughout the earth have experienced multiplication of food. They have it at Bill Johnson's place in Redding, California. They've seen multiplication of food. And in, in uh, other Catholic charismatic groups have seen it down in Mexico. And it's quite almost commonplace these days, we could say. Commonplace. Not commonplace, maybe, but it is happening. And I was trying to drive my motorcycle years ago now. I'm like Peter, I saw what's in that wind. 
trying to keep pushing past the point when I'm on empty and how far can I keep going. And you know, the pressure spiritually gets greater and greater and greater until I could see the demons that are behind that resisting this kind of thing. You know, it is the devil himself. They are like horrid beasts tearing away at my heart. And as I was pressing against it, it's the winds that blow against us, breaking through into these things. But we're going to see it. Or there's other winds. The fourth wind, so that's the financial. Now, obviously, we could spend a day on each one of these things, okay, because there's many stories and things we could tell. But anyway, military is the fourth wind. The military, the, the sheer threat of violence. And in our society, the threat of violence also includes the whole legal system, isn't it? Because ultimately, the legal system, at the end of the legal system, there's a policeman who actually has a stick, or if he needs it, he can bring in the guns and shoot you if you don't do what is right. Now, it's nice if you have a nice policeman, because God has also used these things. But in our society... And certainly in societies throughout the world, over history, the threat of literal military violence, the sword. James, who was one of the disciples, got his head cut off as well, like John the Baptist, with a sword. Peter was locked up in prison, and he thought that he was going to be killed as well, also by Herod. But the angel came, remember, and let him out. Okay, so some of us may face violence, and it may be through more subtle forms in sophisticated Western nations where it is just coming at you through the legal system that will oppress your finances, your job opportunities, and, and, and so on. And it's not as far. If I was preaching this in 1957, people wouldn't have thought, well, not in England, thankfully. It would never happen. But actually, right in England right now, you could lose your job for no more than saying what John the Baptist said to Herodias. Yeah. You could lose your job. In lots of sectors, you would lose your job for that, wouldn't you? Okay, so that's the threat. That's in the wind. So Peter is seeing what's in the wind, the spirits of it. And he began to sink. It terrified him. Have I terrified you? I haven't really terrified you, have I? I haven't preached it fervently enough to really terrify you and bring it fully into view. But believe me, the winds that are against us, and Jesus sent them out into that impossible wind apart from he himself being there. So let, let me just finish up now. I do apologize. <laughs> no, Jesus didn't deliberately offend. At one time, it actually says he did something so as to avoid offense. You know that? It actually says that. That time he paid his taxes. That he didn't really, I'm not really, I don't actually have to pay these legally, but go and catch a fish and get fish out of his mouth. So as not to give offense. So, so Okay, there is a time also not to give offense. So I'm not just saying go out and be social misfits and weirdos. <laughs> All right, <laughs> for the sake of it. <laughs> okay. All right, so anyway, but four things. How to keep our proper head in place. How to let Jesus be our head. How to, obviously we need to cooperate with his offending work in our life. Number one, honor the prophets, and the word of God. You know, there's a lot of ways to chop off a prophet's head that look very, are very subtle. 
And many churches, and I have been in churches, where the prophets' heads all got chopped off. Ping, ping, ping. And they all leave. And everybody's thinking, glad that troublemaker's leaving our church. Now we can get on and run this place like we like it. All right? And I'm talking about nice, charismatic churches, even. Obviously, the other guys chopped off the prophet's head long ago, and the apostles, and don't they? I'm talking about even nice, charismatic churches. Because, you know, we need the prophetic word. We can never even use the prophetic words from last year or 10 years ago. We need the living prophetic word. It is one of the gifts. It's the foundations of the church. And if you don't have the prophets and the apostles, you won't have the cornerstone either. You will simply have a managed social club. Right? Does anybody want that? Full of politics and goings on and pecking orders and all that crap. Does anybody want that? I certainly do not want that in my life, and I'm sure that none of you do either. All right? Honor the prophets and the word of God. We get our morality and our values from the scripture. All right? They never change. It is still wrong for someone to take someone else's wife, like John the Baptist said to Herod. It's always been wrong since the beginning of time, and it always will be wrong. And all kinds of other moral things as well. Uh, you know, they don't change. God doesn't change his morality because the dinner parties of our society suddenly feel that this or that or the other thing is now nice and wonderful. Honoring the prophet. Secondly, obey Jesus rather than all the other voices, especially social convention and common sense and all that kind of stuff. Obey Jesus. The problem is disobedience. In the human race, the problem is disobedience. When Adam and Eve disobeyed, they made someone else the head over them instead of God. You want Jesus to be your head? You want to walk in salvation? Obey Jesus. All right? Salvation of the gospel is not about acquiescing to a particular doctrine of the atonement and the cross in your heart. It is after that to walk in obedience, to make Jesus your head, to make him the Lord, let him be the Lord of your life. There's no salvation if you just state theology, you just recite your theological position that you say you agree with in your mind. If you actually agree with it in your mind, you actually do it. Okay? So obey Jesus. Second. Third, welcome the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the great wind from heaven. And if you're up against all the other winds, you need some wind on your side as well. And you need the biggest and most rushing and the most powerful wind of all, which is the Spirit of Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus appeared as a ghost walking. He appeared as a spirit walking out on the water, didn't he? Peter saw, the disciples saw. And if we're going to see Jesus, we'll see him in the Spirit, in the Holy Ghost. And anyway, John the Baptist said, when the Holy Spirit descends on one like a dove and remains there, that's where the Holy Spirit is in Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus. So we obey Jesus, we obey the Holy Spirit. We walk with Jesus, we walk with the Holy Spirit. We're up against the winds of the earth, we have the wind of heaven behind us. Behind us. And sometimes people make this big thing, oh, I seek the giver and not the gifts and all that. What a load of rubbish. You receive the giver, you receive his gifts. If somebody comes to your house and brings gifts, you just love them, you give them a big kiss, you take all their gifts, enjoy them, and whatever, don't you? 
You don't start sifting, oh, I love this person, but I'm not going to worry about the gifts and all this nonsense. We receive the Holy Spirit, all the gifts of the Spirit. We need, especially to prophesy, we need the prophetic gift because we need to be connected to our head, don't we? Otherwise, we won't know what to do. We won't make the right decisions. We'll judge from human wisdom, from the dinner party, half-drunk wisdom of men. And fourthly, love the Father. Do not love the world. John says you cannot love the world and the Father. You either love one or the other. Love the Father. Put your hope in him. Do not put your hope in the world. We sacrifice the world for the sake of the kingdom. And finally, well, I'm just saying, obviously evidence of the Father, loving the Father is loving one another, that we love one another. Amen. Love one another. Actually, this whole sermon in Matthew, by the way, ends, the, the church bit, before we move on to sermon number five, ends with these words, the same will happen to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. I'm going to finish on that. If you've been offended by me, please forgive your brother from the heart. That's where the servant ultimately ends. Okay. But ultimately, it's evidenced by our walking in love. We walk a different way in genuine love. You know? I mean, maybe it's tough love, isn't it? I mean, but imagine, you know, Herod, he sort of loved John the Baptist, didn't he? But he ended up cutting off his head. He, he was actually protecting him from this vicious wife of his. But when his own situation got compromised, then, you know. So his love was very, very fickle. And worldly love, you know, we need the tough love of God. Let him offend you. Let him take you through the scary stuff. All right? We're going to do that? Sorry about the time and everything, but hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> well, let's pray. You know. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You may have been a Christian for a long time, or you may be exploring the possibilities of a relationship with God. Wherever you are in your journey of life, please feel free to contact us at Woolwich Community Church if you would like any further information on today's message. We will be happy to talk with you, pray with you, and help you in any way we can. Please see the information below in our bio on how to get in touch with us. Have a blessed week and God bless.